What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. Memorial Day weekend is this coming weekend, and it is low-key, one of the best sports weekends of the entire year. Let's just look at last year as an example. There were several Game 7s across the NBA and NHL. The French Open was in full swing at this point. More than 300,000 fans attended the Indy 500 at Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Real Madrid beat Liverpool in the Champions League final. And the NCAA Men's and Women's Lacrosse National Championships were won by Maryland and UNC, respectively. It's truly one of the best times on the sports calendar, but there is nothing better, in my opinion, than the Monaco Grand Prix. It's one of the most iconic events in sports history. So for today's podcast, I'm going to run through the numbers. There's a fascinating business behind this event, and some of the numbers will blow your mind. So without further ado, let's get right to it. All right, everyone, let's start with the obvious. The Monaco Grand Prix is one of the most iconic events in sports. I think we all understand that at this point, whether you like Formula One or whether you don't. It's a staple on the Formula One calendar since 1929. Nearly 100 years this race has been running in Monaco. The track is just over two miles long, and it's on the Mediterranean Sea. It attracts some of the biggest celebrities in the world, including recent appearances by people like Kylian Mbappe, Cristiano Ronaldo, Serena Williams, Bella Hadid, Kendall Jenner, and the list goes on. Virtually every celebrity you can possibly think of that lives in Europe or even America has been to this race at some point or another over the last few decades. And that's really just the tip of the iceberg. Celebrities are one thing, but there's also a bunch of other examples. More than 50 super yachts worth billions of dollars will dock in Monaco's Port Hercules throughout the week. Some of them are paying upwards of $100,000 or $150,000 per night for their spot in the port. And there are over 12,000 millionaires living in Monaco alone. That's a third of their entire population are millionaires. And visitors should expect to pay thousands of dollars per night for even a mediocre hotel room. Like I said, the Monaco GP is truly one of a kind. So let me explain to you exactly the money and business behind this event. I want to go category by category. So let's start with Monaco's unique and we'll call it lucrative agreement with Formula One. So Formula One has been racing through Monaco streets for nearly 100 years, and that long history has awarded Monaco a unique partnership with Formula One. For example, Monaco reportedly only pays a $15 million per year hosting fee, which is anywhere between $5 million and $40 million less than every other Formula One host city. So the easiest way to explain this, and I'm sure I've said this at some point or another, so this, if this is repetitive, I apologize. But for those that don't know, Formula One makes money by doing hosting fees. Each city pays them a fee each year to host a race. So places like Qatar pay $55 million. Russia was paying $50 million. Australia pays $35 million. Singapore pays $35 million. Canada pays $30 million. The U.S. and Austin, Texas pays $25 million. Brazil pays $25 million. Monza pays $25 million. France was paying $22 million. Italy was paying $20 million. Monaco pays $15 million. And this is important because this is the biggest revenue driver for Formula One at each event. They don't do the sponsorships necessarily. They don't do concessions. They don't make money from tickets. They basically get a fee to host the race and they loan you all of their assets, all of their IP, the drivers, the cars. They don't own any of that stuff. So the biggest fee comes from the race hosting fees by the circuit themselves. And Monaco pays less than every single other circuit on the calendar. This is especially important in context because it's the longest and the most historic race and the most iconic race on the Formula One calendar. So they have these like special deals that not every other circuit gets, right? It depends on how much Formula One wants to go to your location and the kind of leverage that you're able to get because of that. But it's also other advantages too, outside of just hosting fees and the dollars associated with that. 
Take their TV arrangement, for example. Up until this year, the TV production and direction was completely controlled locally in Monaco. It's a station called Tele Monte Carlo. So they controlled the whole production, the, the camera angles, what shots to do, the production, the quality of the direction, everything they produced for the entire form of the one audience globally. This angered fans. The broadcast often missed key moments because they were showing random shots. There's some hilarious videos going around, especially this time of year, that show basically like, you know, crashes are happening or races are happening and they're just showing like random things throughout the circuit, which frustrated fans, obviously. And it's one of the things that Formula One has made a priority to change this year. And they ultimately did. They're going to be controlling the camera angles from here on out. We'll see how it goes. I'm assuming it will improve the quality. Formula One is no stranger to this. They do this at all the other tracks. And another one of these strange agreements is sponsorships. These are also fully controlled by Monaco, and they often directly clash with F1's biggest partners. And there's no better example of this than Rolex, in my opinion. So TAG is the official watch sponsor of the Monaco GP. Their branding is absolutely everywhere. It's on the signs, it's throughout the venue, it's throughout the streets, it's on yachts, it's literally everywhere in Monaco during this time of year. But the problem is that Rolex pays Formula One $50 million annually in a sponsorship deal to be the official watch of Formula One. So you have two competing watch brands now that are directly competing with each other in a circuit and in a, a race-specific environment. And they don't get category exclusivity in Monaco. So Monaco sells these sponsorships themselves. They make significantly more money from TAG than they do from Rolex. Obviously, that's a Formula One partner. And they give TAG much more signage across the track. So it's no surprise that Rolex would, one, be upset about this, but Formula One wouldn't like it either because it's much more difficult to go out and sign partners when the tracks that are hosting your races are doing something completely different. And not only completely different, but signing competing sponsors with your sponsors. So it's no surprise there that Formula One is not happy about that. But even if Monaco has to eventually give up some of its control, which is rumored to be happening, its partnership with Formula One is still objectively a very, 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 very good deal, at least economically. That's because Monaco's population increases by 5x for the weekend. For example, they have 36,686 people every single day in Monaco. That is their official population. But it balloons to over 200,000 people visiting during race weekend. And this race is estimated to bring an economic impact of $110 million annually to Monaco. The easiest way to think about Monaco, I've never been. I've seen pictures. I've talked to people that have been. For those that haven't been, they have four luxury casinos. They have a bunch of high-end stores, Louis Vuitton, Chanel, Dior, all these places. There's even a nightclub, One Oak, which has other locations. They charge $10,000 just to get in for the night. That's before drinks. Entry to the club is $10,000. So as you can tell, businesses in and around Monaco greatly benefit from this influx of out-of-town visitors, right? It's not even just locals. There's only 36,000 people there that live there full-time. It's an influx of out-of-town visitors. There's people coming from different countries all over the world into Monaco for a three-day stay. They're expecting to spend money, and that is exactly what they're doing. So don't be surprised. Obviously, tickets and accommodations aren't cheap either. This brings me into my next topic. There's 12,000 millionaires living in a 299-acre area. The size of Monaco from a square footage perspective is about the same size as New York City Central Park. It's actually smaller than New York City Central Park. So we're talking about basically a rich person's playground. It's a very wealthy, wealthy, wealthy area. There's 12,000 millionaires. A third of the population is a millionaire. Most of the people are imports. They weren't born there. They're not from Monaco. They moved from other areas because of the tax laws, which we'll get into in a second. But this causes the Monaco GP prices to skyrocket. It's by far one of the most expensive races on the Formula One calendar. One, because the area is expensive, but two, there's only 37,000 tickets available. 
37,000 tickets is not a lot. If you think about the attendance at other races like Miami or Austin, right? Austin was getting hundreds of thousands of people attending the race each year. These circuits are much, 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 much bigger. They can hold more fans and the prices reflect that. Now, tickets for the Monaco GP, look, secondary market is going to be different, but these are the official ticket prices that you can buy online if you're able to secure a ticket. Practice on Friday. $160 for the day for grandstand tickets. If you want to sit in a grandstand and just watch the car goes by during practice, $160 per ticket, all the way up to three-day luxury packages that go for $16,000 per ticket. Again, the tickets range from $160 for one day of practice to $16,000 for basically paddock club passes, maybe garage passes, stuff like that for three days in Monaco. And this doesn't even count other things, right? It doesn't count necessarily food or yachts or anything like that. We'll get to that because hotels aren't cheap either. Now, I've looked at Monaco before. I actually considered going this year. I was offered a ticket, but I couldn't swing it last minute. But most people, what I learned through this process, end up staying in Nice in France. And the reason they do this is because it's significantly cheaper, and it's only like 20 to 25-minute train ride or cab ride away from Monaco. So usually you can book a room over there for like $300 to $400 per night, and you just take a train over or a car over, and it's significantly cheaper than staying in Monaco yourself. Because if you want to stay in Monaco, it's a completely different story. The legendary hotel there, Monte Carlo, costs $6,000 per night. $6,000 per night. Literally, that's how much it costs. It's obviously an iconic hotel. It's one of the main attractions from a tourism perspective in Monaco. And they can charge essentially whatever they want for the weekend, but they charge $6,000. Now, the other option here is staying on a yacht. So yachts are plentiful. They're bountiful in Monaco during Grand Prix weekend. There will be, you know, depending on how you want to classify a yacht, super yacht, mega yacht, regular yacht, small boat, whatever it is, there's hundreds of boats in the Monaco Harbor during this week. Some of them are staying obviously out at sea and some of them are docking for the entirety of the weekend. To stay on the yacht or watch the race from the yacht, you can be paying, you know, $1,000 up to like four to $5,000 for the day per day to stay on a yacht and watch the race. Form the one as ticket packages, and there's a bunch of other hospitality partners that have them too. But staying on a yacht, bringing your yacht there, I mean, you have a lot of money, right? I imagine that if you have a $100 million, $200 million, $300 million, or a $400 million yacht, you're not necessarily worried about the price to stay there, but it's really expensive for context. If you're staying there for like four to five days, you can be paying upwards of $50,000, $100,000, or even $150,000 per night to dock your boat there, depending on the size of the boat. Obviously, there's a bunch of other stuff that goes into that between your crew, your fuel, your maintenance, food and beverages, et cetera. And some people, when they bring their yachts there, are paying upwards of a million dollars, two million dollars, three million dollars to keep their yacht there for the week. There's this yacht called Faith. It's a massive, massive, massive boat. It was the largest yacht at the Monaco Grand Prix for several years in a row. It was previously owned by Lawrence Stroll, who's obviously Lance Stroll's dad and the owner of Aston Martin Racing Team. He sold it to Nicholas Latifi's dad, actually, and he had brought it there for the past couple of years, but that yacht will obviously probably not be there this year. I tracked it on marine traffic a few days ago, and it wasn't headed there or anything, so I doubt it's going to be at the race. Obviously, Latifi is no longer a driver for Williams, so there's not necessarily a reason for the boat to be there. But the next biggest yacht, which will be there this year, is a boat called Octopus. It's a 414-foot super yacht. It has 13 cabins. It accommodates 26 guests. It has two helipads, a gym spa, what they're calling like a beach club, which essentially is like a way to get in the water pretty easily. It has a movie theater and a bunch of water toys, as you can imagine, everything from jet skis to paddle boards to games that you could be playing, stuff like that. The boat has room for 60 
three crew members, 63 crew members. That is unimaginably big. It can cruise 9,000 miles before needing to refuel and is worth more than $200 million. This boat previously belonged to the late Microsoft co-founder Paul Allen, but was then sold to an undisclosed buyer who has since made the vessel available for charter. These boats cost a ridiculous amount of money if you want to charter them for the week. Maybe that's what's going on in Monaco. Who knows? We don't know who owns the boat, and we certainly do not know who is renting the boat right now. Maybe that will become public at some point, but you guys get the point. If you go on Marine Traffic, it's this fun website where you can actually go in and track the boats, not only where they're going and where they're kind of coming from, but you can see, like you can zoom in on Monaco's Harbor right now, and you can see every single boat that's parked there right now, and you can click on them, and it gives you the details of the boat, and then you can basically just Google the name of the boat and get a bunch of information around kind of like how big the boat is, what it looks like, who owns it, et cetera. It's actually kind of fun, and the screenshot is hilarious because if you track it from like Monday to Sunday, it just gets more and more and more and more. More boats show up every single day. I wouldn't be surprised if you see... Jeff Bezos' boat eventually show up there. We know that he's yachting around Spain and areas like that over the past week. There's going to be a bunch of other boats coming in. I will keep you guys updated on Twitter about the best ones and the biggest ones and the coolest ones that I see over the weekend. But outside of that, one of the other interesting things about Monaco is that this is essentially what we'll call a home race for a bunch of drivers. I say home race kind of jokingly because it's not really their home. The only driver I think that was actually born in Monaco and lived there is Charles Leclerc but a bunch of other drivers lived there. And the reason for that is pretty simple. It's taxes, privacy, location, et cetera. So Max Verstappen lives there. Lewis Hamilton lives there. Leclerc lives there. Lando Norris lives there. Valtteri Bottas lives there. Checo, Sergio Perez lives there. Hulkenberg lives there. Nick DeVries lives there. And Alex Albon lives there. So a good chunk of the starting grid actually lives in Monaco and doesn't have to commute all that far to go to the race this weekend. Now, again, there's several reasons why this happens. First and foremost is most likely taxes. You know, this is kind of like a touchy subject. People have given Lewis Hamilton a hard time about this. They gave Lando Norris a hard time about this a year or two ago when he moved there. Everyone gets a hard time about this when you leave the area that you grew up in or the area that you lived in and you move to Monaco. And the reason for this is simple. Monaco has no federal income tax or capital gains tax. You literally don't pay taxes on income or capital gains when you live in Monaco. However, there is like kind of this weird rule, I would call it, where non-native residents people that weren't born there, are required to be what they call financially liquid at any moment in time by having a minimum of $540,000 on them in liquid cash at all times, right? I don't physically mean like actual cash. I mean that you have access to $540,000 at any point in time, which is kind of like a hilarious rule. I'm not exactly sure why that's there, but maybe a listener can DM me on Twitter and tell me. The second biggest thing is privacy. Monaco is essentially considered a playground for the rich. The country protects its wealthy citizens too. They have a $234,000 GDP per capita and the 38,000 population of the country is virtually home to some of the richest of the rich, which means you're less likely to find craze fans following you around. There isn't you know, people everywhere trying to chase you down for autographs, trying to take pictures of you. There's certainly some of that. Don't get me wrong. It's tourism, everything like that. But it's different than living in London or other places like that where some of these drivers grew up and would be living other than Monaco. So the uh, government also requires expressed written permission for all professional photographers in the country, which means you won't find paparazzi following you around, which is very cool. And again, one of the reasons why the drivers love living there. There's some level of privacy along with taxes. And the third reason, which is, you know, I'm making these reasons up essentially. It's what I view as being very valuable to a driver that would want to live there. The third one would be location. It's 
very central. Nice Airport is only 15 miles away where the drivers have access to virtually flights anywhere they want to go. Again, a lot of these people are flying private. Max Verstappen has his own plane, Lewis Hamilton, Leclerc, all these people, most of them fly private a lot of times. Some of them fly together. Verstappen has been known to take other drivers on his plane and they have access to an airport where they can virtually get anywhere within Europe pretty easily. It's a good central location. So again, Taxes, privacy, location, that is why, you know, I don't know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, not nine drivers live in Monaco today. And it's pretty cool. You can see them. Some of them commute on boat, the ones that are staying in hotels or elsewhere. Maybe it's better from their house, but some of them just take scooters over if they live nearby or whatever. It's pretty cool to see during the weekend. And last but not least, there's two things. I want to talk one about the future of this race. So there was a little bit of frustration last year, and I think this has been going on probably for a few years now, about the future of the Monaco race. So I think part of this is because, one, the financials are a little bit different for Formula One than they used to be. Formula One was obviously acquired by Liberty Media. They're drastically expanding the total addressable market for the audience of the sport. Going in America, they now have three races this upcoming year. They're expanding the number of races overall. They're trying to maximize profits as a publicly traded company. They have shareholders, and they're obviously trying to make more money with the sport. Now, part of this is that Monaco is like kind of grandfathered in through previous agreements with the former administration of Formula One, where they have these unique deals with the TV, with the the hosting fees, with the sponsorships and so forth. And when you add that in with the race kind of being boring overall, right? Like part of it is the luxury of the sport. Part of it's iconic. It gets a bunch of viewers. The TV ratings are great. But the actual race itself is relatively pretty boring. Like just think about last year. I don't know who watched the race last year, but there were only two overtakes. Both of them were by Pierre Gasly due to a mismatch on tires. So there were essentially no overtakes, really. Most races in Formula 1, for people who don't watch a sport, you can get 30, 40, 50 overtakes in a single race. So having two or essentially zero because they were both done by the same person due to a mismatch on tires is not good. It's not great. It's not fun to watch. It's basically follow the leader through the streets, and it's not entertaining as it should be. And last year, it was especially bad. Fernando Alonso, for those that remember, held up essentially half the the grid for an extended period of time. There was, uh, I think, a 15-second gap. Norris pitted. Lando Norris pitted last year, and he came out roughly 15 seconds ahead of everyone else still. That's how bad. There's like this iconic image of the markers on the track and half the grid's on one side and half of the drivers are on the other side because Alonso was literally just saving his tires and trying to hold everyone up. And that's exactly what you can do in Monaco. It's extremely difficult to pass. There's nowhere really to do it. Qualifying is especially important. So that is one thing. The other thing is obviously the money, right? If they're able to drastically expand the amount of money that they make in Monaco, that would be really important. If you can get that fee up to $30 million, even $40 million, whatever it is, but put it on par with some of the newer races on the calendar. I think that would be important. But ultimately, I don't think this race is going anywhere. It's, you know, it's not going to be taken off the calendar. It's too important to the history of the sport. Monaco is a region and from the one as a whole. But still, I do think there will eventually be some changes. I talked about this last year in the newsletter. And look, we did see some changes. The TV schedule is now changing this year where Formula One is going to be managing the cameras. They're going to be doing a better job there. Fans should be a little bit happier about that. But don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. I'm telling you right now, other things will be changing. I don't know if the host fee will increase. I don't know if they'll start cracking down on sponsorships. Who knows? But things are going to be changing. The track layout could potentially change at some point to try to make the race a little bit more entertaining. There's certainly some things that you could do to make the race better. My point is simple. I think the race is going to be changing. But last but not least, I want to talk about one other thing when it comes to the Monaco Grand Prix. I want to leave you guys with some conversation starters, what we'll call fun facts, some things that you can talk to your family and friends about and seem smart. You're welcome. So 
one of the things that I think is really interesting is Monaco is the shortest track on the F1 calendar. Again, it's just over two miles long the circuit, and therefore it has the most laps. 78 laps they'll complete in Monaco this weekend, which is more than any other circuit on the calendar. Also, the average form of the one driver changes gears almost 4,000 times, 3,666 times during the Monaco Grand Prix. Monaco, again, is 0.78 square miles. The city state is smaller than Central Park in New York, which is 1.31 square miles. So it's almost double the size, which is absolutely crazy to think about. And from context of the the small population to the way they protect their citizens, this is an absolutely mind-blowing stat that someone on my team found, shout out Eric, and I thought was absolutely amazing. There's one police officer for every 100 residents in Monaco. I mean, that is absolutely incredible. One police officer for every 100 residents. And to think about those 100 residents, again, if a third of the population are millionaires, then call it 33 of those 100 people are millionaires. And one police officer is protecting every 100 people in the area. I don't know how that compares to other areas in the United States or elsewhere, but that seems like a pretty good number and a good comparison. So if you're going to take one thing away from this part of the podcast, it's that Monaco is an iconic race. The money behind this race and the business behind this race is astronomical compared to some of the other races on the calendar. They have a very unique setup with Formula One where they pay the smallest fee of any other circuit on the Formula One calendar. They're able or they were able to control some of the TV coverage, which Formula One has now taken over, but they still have a very unique agreement when it comes to sponsorships. They have competing sponsors with Formula One and they are not scared to display them. Again, if you're going to a race, I've heard Monaco is an amazing race to go to. It's one of those bucket list items for me, for sure. I'm sure it's the same way for many other people, but it is not going to be cheap. You can expect to spend thousands of dollars on tickets and hotel accommodations alone, whether you're staying in Monaco or staying in nearby areas as well. Again, there are certain areas where you can watch the race without tickets. A lot of people actually do that. Tens of thousands of people do that every single year. So you can be a little bit strategic about the trip if you don't want to spend a bunch of money. But if you're trying to do the trip right, and if you want to do it in a way where you're able to stay somewhere comfortably, you're able to experience all the things you want to experience from parts of the track or watching the track or the environment of the weekend, it's going to cost a lot of money. And that is what it is because Monaco is an expensive area. There's a lot of millionaires that are living there. It's a small population. The infrastructure is not ready for hundreds of thousands of people to come in there every single weekend. So the one weekend that it does happen a year, they make a lot of money on it. The economic impact is reportedly $110 million every single year. And I say that half-heartedly because as we know, and as we talk about on the show all the time, the economic impact is not always the full story. But again, I hope everyone enjoys the race this weekend. I hope you were able to learn something from this part of the podcast, explaining the business and money behind this event. I think it's fascinating, and I hope you do too. All right, everyone, quick interruption from today's episode to talk about the sponsor of this podcast, ButcherBox. I've been ordering from ButcherBox for a few years now, and it's the single best solution I found to save time while guaranteeing the quality of your food. Everyone probably knows what ButcherBox is, but they deliver 100% grass-fed, grass-finished beef, free-range organic chicken, humanely raised pork, and wild-caught seafood directly to your doorstep. It's literally that easy, and it tastes incredible. So ditch the butcher lines today and guarantee the freshness of your meat with ButcherBox. And here's the best part. If you sign up today, ButcherBox is offering all of my listeners two pounds of ground beef for free every time they order over the next year. Let me say that again. Two pounds of ground beef every time you order over the next year you get for free. So go to butcherbox.com slash Joe Pomp and use code Joe Pomp, all caps, Joe Pomp at checkout to get that discount today. All right, before I let you guys go for the day, I want to talk about two more things. Just a couple interesting things that I saw online yesterday and I tweeted out that I think you guys will probably think are fascinating too. 
One was I saw a clip. Bleacher Report has this new show with Mookie Betts where he interviews other MLB players. And this clip was like criminally underviewed. I think it had 1.2 thousand views on YouTube. And Bleacher Report has millions of subscribers. So I don't know exactly what's going on there, but I watched it and I was like, damn, that was a really cool clip. It's only a couple minutes long, but it's Mookie Betts interviewing Clayton Kershaw. And he simply just asked him what his routine is because Mookie's famous for having a very detailed routine down to the minute on game days. Obviously, other players in, in professional sports and Major League Baseball specifically have similar routines. I'm not saying Clayton Kershaw is the only one that does this, but I thought it was a really cool inside look at like an elite player in an elite sport talking through kind of what he does on an annual or on a daily basis to get prepared for games. And he does it consistently. He's done it for over a decade. So I'm going to read you through the schedule and then you guys can kind of decipher it for yourself and see what you think is valuable and what's not. So Clayton Kershaw says he arrives at the field for a night game. He arrives at Dodger Stadium at 2 p.m., 1.30 to 2 p.m. He arrives at the field. He then eats lunch at 2.30. He says he eat lunch, eats lunch at 2.30, which, you know, whether you want to call it a late lunch or not, he says it's a late lunch for him because he can't eat during the night of game. So he doesn't eat again until after the game. So he eats lunch at 2.30. Then he looks at the opponent's lineup and reviews it for, at 3 p.m. So call it an hour after he gets to the stadium and 30 minutes after eating lunch. He looks at the opponent's lineup. And the reason he does this is pretty simple. He already knows kind of how he wants to get people out. He's done all of his scouting. He does that on his own time. But then he wants to just make sure there's no changes in the lineup, anyone else he needs to look at, pinch hitters, that kind of stuff. So he reviews the lineup for about 30 minutes. Then he throws a blitz ball against the wall. And anyone who has played baseball or knows what a blitz ball is, you know that this is kind of quirky and kind of funny, but it's interesting. He essentially says that you can't be out there throwing 100 curve balls. You can't be throwing all these pitches every single day and hurting your arm. So he throws a blitz ball against the wall just to warm up his arm a little bit, which I thought was pretty interesting. So that's at 3.30 p.m. He's done at 4 p.m. He's dressed at this point. He has his cleats on and he heads to the training table. He literally takes a nap for an hour on the training table. From 4 to 5 p.m., he naps on the training table with his cleats on, which I found hilarious. Someone joked on Twitter, they said, this sounds like a spa day, <laughs> which I thought was pretty funny. But so he naps on the training table for an hour. Then he does a team meeting at 5 p.m. This isn't like a whole wide team meeting. I think it's just with him and the pitching coach and maybe the manager, people like that. It's a smaller team meeting. He says it only takes about 15 minutes. They just go over the game plan, what they want to accomplish, who they're looking to pitch to, who they may not be, who they're trying to get out with certain pitches, stuff like that. 15-minute meeting. Then he heads to the weight room. Again, he's fully dressed at this point, so he starts his warm-up. He uses weights for the majority of this warm-up. It takes about 45 minutes. And this is where I thought it got really interesting because if you notice everything on his schedule at this point is like 15, 30-minute or an hour increments. It's all 2 p.m., 2.30 p.m., 3 p.m., 3.30 p.m., 4 p.m., 5 p.m., 5.15 p.m. But then at 5.58, he says, 5.58, he puts heat packs on. 5.58, he says, I put my heat packs on at exactly 5.58. Then at 6.23, right? So 6.23, we'll call that 25 minutes later, exactly at 6.23, he runs onto the field for stretching. This is a little bit of stretching. He stretches for 17 minutes until 6.40. He does all of his stretches. He has them timed out, 17 minutes of stretching. 6.40, he starts playing catch to warm up. He finishes warming up at 6.57. So again, 17 minutes of stretching, 17 minutes of warming up on the field, actually throwing the ball. And he's done warming up right as the anthem starts at Dodger Stadium at 6.57. He listens to the anthem. He heads back into the dugout. He then takes the field at 7.08 for the game. Again, so there's like 15 things on that list that I just named. Every single one of them is down to the minute that he does. He's been doing this routine for over a decade. 
And like I said on Twitter, it is absolutely no surprise that he's become one of the best pitchers in the game. This doesn't mean that if you're a pitcher and you go do this routine in Major League Baseball, you're going to be one of the best. He obviously has some qualities that push him far and away from a performance standpoint, other players. But at the end of the day, you hardly will find a player that is at the top of their game for so long, a decade, over a decade at this point. If you look up his stats, I don't even know here. Let's see. Clayton Kershaw. Yeah. So his first year with the Dodgers was in 2008. He's had essentially like a one to a two to maybe a three or ERA every year since then. So his first year, he posted a 4.26 ERA. The following year was in the twos, 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 ones, ones, two, one, two, two, three, two, three, two, two. That's amazing consistency. Absolutely amazing consistency. He's starting anywhere between like 20 to 33 to 34 games every single year. He's thrown many, 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 many 25 complete games in his career. He's thrown in 411 games. He has an ERA lifetime of 2.49. So again, whether you want to criticize his performance in the playoffs or elsewhere, he has done an incredible job for being really consistent over years and at least over a decade at this point. So kudos to him. That's awesome. And now the next thing I want to talk about is a little bit different from a consistency standpoint, but it's maybe a little bit more fun. So I'm sure some of you saw, but Michael Jordan has purchased a new $3 million hypercar, essentially a supercar. It's called Hennessy Venom F5 Roadster, completely custom. I don't know how tall Michael Jordan is, but I assume he's like 6'5", 6'6", something like that. So the car is completely custom so he can fit into it. It's a two-seater. There's absolutely no room, I imagine, for his golf clubs. But the car from a performance standpoint is absolutely amazing. It has over 800 horsepower. It has a 300 mile per hour top speed. And listen to this. It can go zero to 185 miles per hour in 10 seconds. You know, I don't know how many people are car people that listen to this podcast, but that's absolutely insane. There's only 30 of these cars that will ever exist. So it's also a collector's item. And Michael Jordan took delivery of this car on Friday at his golf club in Florida. If you go on the Hennessy Instagram account, you can actually see a picture of Michael Jordan with the founder or the owner of the company getting the car delivered. His car is like this carbon fiber glossy finish. It has like a yellow stripe on it, black wheels, carbon fiber inside. It looks really, really, really nice. But you can't really see the car that he actually got. It's just kind of like on the side. So if you go to my Twitter account, you can see another example of the car that's blue and has red stripes and a red interior. You get the point. It's not the exact car, but it's very similar and it looks absolutely insane. The response on Twitter was hilarious. And to be honest, like it's one of those things where it's like so high performance that you kind of have to be scared a little bit. Like you got to be careful in this type of car. These cars are very easy to wreck. They're very dangerous. Obviously, no one should be going 300 miles per hour on regular street roads. These are track cars. These are cars that you do not want to mess around with. I tweeted the other week, I'm sure some of you guys saw it, it got picked up by a bunch of networks, was Patrick Reed's car. So someone on Reddit and eventually Golf Magazine and Drive, the car outlet, picked it up. So he got this Porsche car. Let me see if I can pull up my tweet real quick. Patrick Reed, after he won the Masters in, what year was that? That was 2018. He won the Masters. He bought himself a Porsche 911 GT2 RS. It's a $450,000 car. There were only 1,000 of them made in the U.S., his also had like this master's theme paint job. It was like this dark green paint with yellow calipers on the, the wheels. And the car just mysteriously appeared on a salvage website one day. It only had 360 miles on the dash and it was absolutely destroyed. It was absolutely destroyed. And we don't know exactly what happened. I was actually speculating at the time. I was like, look, I don't know if this is his car. It looks like the exact same car. It's in his home city where he lives and where he drives the car that it's on the salvage website. 
it kind of seems like too much of a coincidence. There's only a thousand of them. Not many have this paint job, et cetera, et cetera. Turns out that it was his car. It's registered under the same LLC, but it also has the same VIN number as his car. It's absolutely his car. He has not commented on it. No one knows exactly what happened, but this clarifies my point, right? The car is very, 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 very freaking dangerous. We don't know. It, it looked like the car maybe potentially rolled or at least slammed into something. The car was really messed up. You can go online and see it. And I was thinking at first, maybe it was stolen. Maybe someone wrecked it. Who knows? But my guess is he probably got a little bit joyous behind the wheel. And it's it's a difficult car to drive if you're not experienced, if you don't take it to the track, if you're on a back road, just trying to get loose with the car and go fast. It's very dangerous. His car actually ended up selling for $132,000, which I was surprised at. Like, even if you're able to repair the car, the engine's still good, whatever, you know, the car's worth $450,000. You're putting a considerable amount of work into it. Maybe you're making some money on that, but probably not as much as I would have imagined if you were able to get the car for less than $100,000. But that's neither here nor there. Athletes obviously love supercars. They love hypercars and they want to go fast. Michael Jordan is taking it to another level, just like he has always done. It's a $3 million car. It's absolutely beautiful. It's going to be a collector's item. There's only going to be 30 that ever exist. The car's probably going to appreciate in value as long as he doesn't wreck it or put too many miles on it or whatever it is. So be on the lookout. Michael Jordan's going to be going fast. All right, that's it for today. I appreciate all of you listening to this podcast. As always, please, please, please make sure you subscribe to the podcast feed wherever you're listening to this on Apple, Google, Spotify, wherever it is, and share the podcast with a friend. We have a gentleman's agreement. You guys all know this by now. I create this content absolutely for free for you guys. My only ask is that you subscribe to the podcast and you share it with a friend. Just one friend. If you all share with a friend, we will double the listens overnight and I would really appreciate it. So again, I hope everyone has an amazing day, an amazing weekend. Enjoy the sports content that will be out there. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Pompliano and make sure you're subscribed to the newsletter as well, readhuddleup.com. Thanks guys. Talk later.